Welcome to Witch, the women in technology creative industries hub, elevating the voices of women in tech. My name is Bishi, the founder of Witch. In this podcast, I'll be talking to a woman in tech about her work, journey, life, and process. In this episode, I'll be talking to designer, founder of BV Fine Erotic Jewelry, and author of the Boudoir Bible, Bethany Vernon. Please do like, review, and subscribe. We're a new podcast, and every bit of support helps. Just a quick word. Throughout this episode, Bethany and I speak about themes of an erotic and sensual nature. So you might not want to listen to this around little ones, or to anyone who's a bit too sensitive. In fact, I suggest that you sit back, relax, and listen to this in the comfort of your own zone. Trust me, you won't regret it. Welcome to Creative Women in Tech podcast, Bethany Vernon. How are you feeling today? I am feeling very um, good. I'm in Paris and I'm in my beautiful space and uh, I'm locked down uh, with the menace of another full-fledged lockdown, but um, I'm managing fine. I'm working and um, I'm feeling good. That's wonderful. How would you define your practice? Which part of my practice? My practice. All of it. It's like a wheel, no? Yeah. So why don't we describe it like that? Yeah. A wheel. Uh, the center of that wheel is kind of motivated. It's funny that you asked this question, but by what I can bring to this life that I am living that will remain for the benefit of others. Um, the center of the wheel is motivated by love, self-love, the love of others, the love of my planet, our planet. And from that, um, there's also pleasure from that center. You know, love and pleasure, they mix together and or they come together. One motivates the other. And, um, my work is multifaceted. I, as you know, I'm a, I'm a jeweler. Um, before I became a jeweler, I was a, I became an art historian, with a specialization also in religion and philosophy. Um, I moved from the United States, where I was born, mother's English, daddy's American, and I went to Florence to teach goldsmithing and to learn goldsmithing because when you teach, you learn. And I ended up being in Florence and was making, just by chance, I was 21 years old and started to design some jewelry that had um, O-rings on them. I was fascinated by the story of O. And suddenly this little collection, which I called Sadashik, I coined the term Sadashik, 
<laughs> in 1992. <laughs> in 2022, it's going to be 30 years, Bishi. And this jewelry range took me on a journey that was very unexpected. Uh, the collection grew gradually and there was no place for me to sell these things. Um, it brought me to a path where at a certain point I realized, hmm, if there's no place to sell these erotic jewels and tools, uh, why am I doing this? You know, why am I, how, how, what is, what is happening here? And so I decided that I would show them once to a buyer and they pushed me back and I realized I'd hit a nerve. They pushed me back. They said, you can't do that. They categorized me immediately. They said, you're SM. And I said, I'm SM. What do you mean? And I'd never categorized myself as anything but an open-minded pleasure, you know, pro-pleasure activist, uh, sexual activist she became shortly after, you know, I got this response from this woman. The work from the, the, the moment that I understood that if I was going to work in, in the, 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 the realm of pleasure mm, would require that I would also become a teacher. And so I started, and I think you and I met uh, when I was in London teaching a class, I guess it's Soho House or Coco de Mer or one of those venues at the turn of the century. And I had decided after September 11 that I would begin to teach because I thought to myself, how is it possible that people are driving airplanes through, <laughs> through skyscrapers and that we're living in a world that is um, where, where love has become uh, as much of a taboo, really, as pleasure in itself. It's not sex anymore. So I started to teach those classes. Um, I'd been teaching one-on-ones throughout the end of the 90s for private clients. And um, I did, I'd invented the boudoir box, which is an object that I hid until 217 when I did a show at the Museum of Modern Art in Paris uh, that was called Medusa, uh, Bijoux et Tabou, Jewelry and Tabou. And the box had stayed closed except for moments in which I would do the salons. You I think you probably saw the box in, during one of my salons. I would only travel with it and open it for very small groups of people. I certainly did. I'm very lucky. It's beautiful. Thank you. Well, I was very nervous when the, the, the curator of the museum came to my space in Paris and she said, I want the boudoir box. And I said, well, I don't, you know, the boudoir box is a private object. It only works with me when I travel and it's never been in a museum and it's never been shown publicly. It's never been opened like that, you know, it's a triptych shape. And, um, I deal with sacred sex as well. I believe that our sexuality is the center of our bodies. And so, yes, when she, she invited me, she left and I, I'd said, no, I was quite firm with her. And then she said, I'm going to give you a week. And then I thought, I better do this because the boudoir box has inspired a lot of people. A lot of, a lot of possibilities have been generated by those classes. Um, and uh, people have been inspired, you know, we don't have to say names, 
and I thought it's better to move on now and create some new research, new works, etc. But the box came back to my space in Paris and hasn't been out gallivanting since the Museum of Modern Art, uh, at least publicly. Um, the work around the body started to evolve um, really from the very beginning. Uh, I was also, you know, I, but I just didn't know who to share it with or how to share it. I looked for galleries, they were terrified. I tried to find an outlet to facilitate the work that I was doing and bring it out to the world, but people were terrified. In the 90s, people were scared. They were like, what is this big, tall, red-headed woman wearing leather, like trying to get across, you know? Goddess. I think they mean goddess. <laughs> <laughs> He's talking. Um, anyway, so, you know, this, this, the, the work started to move from jewelry to larger format objects to, you know, in the, in the early, at the very beginning of the turn of the century, I was also doing a lot of bondage. And at a certain point, Olivier Zam from Purple Magazine said, Bethany, will you please do something for, for, for Purple? And I said, well, actually, I'm actually working with an artist named Katerina Jeb, and we did a series and we'd like to do a second part of it. We could do that in the Purple Magazine space because at the time Purple Magazine had this very, very open space with a soaring ceiling and we could work from the top down, which is something that I do. I work from the top down and uh, I allowed myself to be tied up and I think it was the first time that the fashion system had seen you know in a magazine uh, a, a, a big tall red-headed vixen yeah <laughs> makeup and gorgeous high heel shoes hanging from the ceiling in fact as soon as purple came out I started to get phone calls I was getting phone calls I think it was 2006 that the article came out and uh it was a big interview I had about I don't know, about 16 pages, I think, in Purple Magazine. And Olivier is, a, is an incredible ally and friend of mine. And he had so many questions about sex and pleasure. And I felt safe in those pages. I knew that I was my target public, you know, that I would, that people yeah. would get it. Suddenly I'm getting phone calls from, I mean, some names I can't say, but yeah. some of them I can. I mean, I got a phone call from Sam Taylor Wood who's now Sam Taylor Johnson. And she said to me, uh, look, I wanna do this bonded session for uh, the New York Times. Can you help me with the chords? And I was like, sure. I started to write the Boudoir Bible uh, with great intention um, by about 2006, I think it was. I took the material in the beginning from my classes that I was teaching in London and how we met actually. Yeah. Uh, and started to compile it. There was a lot of historical material. There was also a lot of material that, that was very much hinged on abuse and how you know abuse causes disassociation. And um, my publisher said to me, you know, we have to take a direction. And I said, well, I guess it's going to be pleasure then. So I had to really clear a lot of things that I will. I'm working on another book as well. I'll come back to. But to to finish the thought, you know, this this the, the, the what happened in me through that experience with these two young girls who voiced it. They said, "Don't untie us. This is so powerful." 
uh, I realized that I needed to understand what was going on in the brain. What is going on in their brain and what was going on in my brain, both when I tie and when I allow myself to be tied by a trusted person? And why do I get high from it? Why do I feel joy from it? Yeah. Why does it facilitate, if I'm in an erotic situation and the cords are used with erotic intent, why does it turn me on? What is going on inside of my brain? So the work became through the experience of what I was discovering and, and um, unveiling as I went. I mean, again, you know, 1992, as a young girl, I designed the, the, the Sadoshi collection. I had no idea where it was going to take me. No idea. We have no idea where life is going to take us. Absolutely. So suddenly the work went from being more uh, sculptural, small scale sculpture, wearable sculpture, noble materials. I always worked in gold and silver. Silver is, by the way, antibacterial. So for the jewelry that I make for the inside of the body, because I also make things that are for the inside of the body, they're all in sterling silver because um, it, it's durable and it's eternal. And um, I don't do any plating. So it is body safe. And little by little, those, those miniature sculptures, the jewelry, these miniature Mm, tools, a lot of them, in fact, another coined term was jewel tools, this idea that the jewelry becomes a tool. You know? Little by little, it led me into all sorts of domains to the point that at a certain point, I found myself doing monumental sculpture in marble, believe it or not. Um, and, uh, and I always wake up thinking this is just the beginning. Wonderful. Where it will take me, I don't know, you know, I don't know. It's yeah. taking me into the brain though, and trying to, I mean, I've really become very um, uh, fascinated and concentrated on the research that is happening around um, uh, neuroscience. It's the most recent science. And sadly, bef just before COVID, I had been um, approved for King's College uh, Neuroscience and Mental Health, PhD. And, um, Hopefully next year I'll be able to resume it. But with COVID, everything just became so questionable. Like well, what's going on? How am I going to, you know, manage to stick to my normal plans, you know? So I put it on hold for now, but neuroscience and mental health is my next big um, academic uh, endeavor. That that's, so, that's so exciting. Does that mean you'll be in London? And does that mean I can see you more? I hope so. I mean, that would be the plan. <laughs> You know, it looks like, I mean, school has gone and gone online, sadly, yes. but, you know, I come to London and you're going to see me soon and more. Yay. Absolutely. Yay. I want to make music. I want to make sounds with you. Yeah, let's do it. I'm, I'm, I'm completely into that. Um, but in that description, there's so, there's such an all encompassing kind of polymath practice. I'm really glad that you said wheel because in our pre-interview chat, we were talking about this idea of the polymath woman. And of course, I think of Jung and I think of mandalas. So I'm really happy that you said the word wheel. It just came out of me. I mean, I think yeah. that you might have been the inspiration, you know. <laughs> and the symbol, it means so many things now. Yeah, yeah. And this, 
whether it's the symbol of a spiritual journey or mm. uh, how we move forward. Yeah. Infinity, yeah. change, and, movement. And so in throughout your throughout this entire kind of grand vista of of work and creativity, what have been the fundamental bits of technology that have been really important throughout the entire wheel? Well, to be honest with you, I the work that I did as a jeweler throughout the 90s um, was all handwork. I am like a mechanic. I have a bit of a mechanical brain and I am very um, manual. So up until very recently, I was um, super and only focused on the handcraft aspect of my work. Today, since 2.15, I guess, I have, well, actually 2.14, I have decided to embrace technology because I am understanding what it can do from a creative point of view. And um, actually, the first time that I fell in love with a 3D um, CAD, was in a marble quarry in 214 when a hand sculpted design of mine was read by a 3D uh, reader Amazing. and transformed, even though it was my hand, it was read by uh, a highly techn technological device and transmitted it into a tool that actually carved this marble chair in a in large scale and it became the origin chair so when this happened also i i watched it happen and it was like a dance i watched this diamond blade on an arm it looks like a praying mantis the machines that they use and they're used in rooms that are they have showers in them so all of this is happening underwater it's uh, happening under constant uh, spraying of water now. And it was so beautiful. She dances. The, the 3D, uh, I'm, I'm not exactly sure how technically I'm going to make a mistake because it's a, it's a 3D device that actually holds a blade and is dancing around the room in the shower. It was the most beautiful thing that I ever saw. In fact, it was funny because I don't know if you saw the Forsyth piece when Forsyth, uh, the choreographer and dancer, uh, used these 3D devices to actually create a dance with 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 flags. You should look it up because it's very beautiful. He also embraced technology, you know? Yeah. There's a dance uh, that happens when when the device is actually carving out of the stone the the object that has been fed through a technical device into its, into its activity now. I mean, it's happening because of technology. And the kind of work that happens with marble today, I mean, it has a lot of downsides too, because you know there's only so much marble on the planet. And when we produce too quickly, we can destroy things. When we go too fast, we can break things. Um, but when it's used with respectfully, as my producer does work, 
as he works with artists and does mostly one-off pieces or limited editions. It can really advance things because the work of that machine, the work of this dancing praying mantis uh, 3D generating uh, device uh, is uh, it's it's replacing the work of six very very like you know the hard positions they they call bozzatori in Italian they called a bozzatore, and they were the people that there would be like six or seven bozzatori that would come in with big sledgehammers and big picks and they would break out you know for Michelangelo there was a bozzatori they would come and they would start to rough things out you know get the head in place get the shoulders in place get the twist in the spot in the spine you know and then Michelangelo would come and refine things more and more and more of course he was there all the time but there were six men doing that six or seven men sometimes so the bozzatori became which is a very hard job it's a very laborious time consuming you know can you imagine the time it took to carve david you know this yeah. monolithic masterpiece yeah suddenly it's happening with this machine which also takes time but a matter of days it's a matter of days and they work day and night and they yeah. never tire so that was my first experience a long-winded expression but uh, it was my first experience and i thought oh i'm not afraid of technology anymore because I was afraid of technology as a young jeweler. I remember going to Arezzo for the first time into a factory that was making chains. And it sounded like a nightmare was happening because I could see the robots in their cases. Chain making is one of the big um, crafts that happens in Arezzo. And basically I could see the tools that I use with my hands, suppliers, soldering tools, uh, uh, all sorts of handheld tools but they were robotic. And the sound it made was like, chick, 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 chick. very strange, almost almost frightening to me at the time because I thought, oh, what's going to happen to my craft? You know, still today, there is nothing more beautiful than a handmade chain. And all of my chains are handmade in, in the end because I don't want an industrial chain, almost all of them, except for one. Um, so I started finally to understand where the power lies. I'm getting ready to do something with technology again with a body of work, a body of masterpieces that or I call them masterpieces, not in the sense of Michelangelo, but in the sense of um, the number one piece. So it would be the handcrafted piece that I made with my hands. And I'm going to push it through technology now. This is, this is what I'm getting ready to. I'm, I'm actually in Paris preparing to yes get the masters and push them now into it push them to, through tech the jewelry business has been turned upside down by tech yeah you know it's it's things are happening that one could never have imagined in my in in that aspect of of the of, of the wheel you know the jewelry yeah. spoke yeah yeah, and I I'm embracing it now, and it's so exciting. And I think that some really interesting futuristic things can happen because of it. Yeah, that's such fantastic news. So I'd love to talk about the theater rig. Could you tell us or the listeners what the theater rig is and how it functions as a as a piece of performance as well? There's a very beautiful video on YouTube, which I'll link in show notes, but I'd love to hear it from the goddess's lips. 
<laughs> I was going to say the horse's mouth, but that is so not. <laughs> the goddess's lips. <laughs> not the horse's mouth, the goddess's lips. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, the, the, the Tera Rig is also uh, fruit of a long process uh, of, uh, of um, again, working with chords. Uh, working from the top down, I have a huge fascination with getting people's bodies off the ground. Like what happens, you know, and I use it also as a healing process when I'm working with someone who, for example, has, has been sexually abused. Um, I work through the, I don't abstract the body at all in my work. And I find that by taking the body partially or totally off the ground, incredible things happen. Think about it. When you're a child, how much did you love to swing? Oh, yeah. You could almost fly, right? Yeah. It's exhilarating, right? So the way that the cheetah or theta, depends on what language you're speaking, mm. um, the rig, it, it came about was that in my space in Paris, it's all designed and rigged to work from the top down. So one day I had done a therapy session with someone and when they left, I went back into the space to cleanse and clear and, you know, clear out the ritual space. And I had worked with this person really with the intention of bringing their body off the ground. You know, it was a partial raise of, of arms and limbs and, getting them to, to trust again, because to, to, to be able to do something like that, you have to trust not only me, but you also have to trust the, the suspension system. And I felt quite elated because it, when, I, when I also am on the other side and I'm working to take your body off the ground and, and take you to flight, uh, I'm very concentrated. And so it instills a sort of, it, it instills a very calming theta brainwave frequency also in me. No, I have to be so 100% with you. I have to be so present with you that nothing else matters. You matter, your safety matters, your wellness matters. And it is so focused that it's, I would say that it's attuned to a meditation. No, it's that focused. One wrong move and it could be dangerous, no? So there's a, you know, there's a bit of adrenaline high, a concentration high, and it becomes like uh, our energies mix and it's very magical. Um, and we're not talking, I'm not talking about something erotic here. I'm talking about doing body work, okay? Yeah. Uh, if I'm with my partner, it's all the more exciting. <laughs> <laughs> Lucky partner. You know how magic my space is. You've, you've walked into my space. You spent an evening in my space. So this person left and I so I was there and I was cleaning up the 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 space and I instinctively sort of just went into what had remained of this rig that was hanging from the ceiling and I pulled myself completely off the ground and it was you know there's a lot of chance in my work no and by chance this the the way that these ropes were still attached to the ceiling allowed me to lie down off the ground. I was by myself, huh? 
And I, I heard a pop in my spine. It was like, pop, pop, pop. I got a release, you know? And I was like, it felt good. It felt good. And um, so I kept, I stayed in it. And I, and I floated around in this remnant of a rig, the remnant of a chord session. And when I came down, I felt like another person. And again, I was like, what is going on? What is going on? When I session, I don't use drugs or alcohol. You know, it's, it's absolutely forbidden in, 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 the, in the ritual space. So that's how the Tita rig was born. By me, yeah. <laughs> self-suspending, you know, uh, and, and understanding through my body. I don't abstract the body in my work. And I think that the experience that I bring, um, and I've been told this by a psychotherapist who I co-work with, that you know they're obliged to abstract the body, and I don't. And this is why the work is very transformational. Yeah, I do a lot of breakthrough work. Yeah, and um, I had my own breakthrough. You know, I have my own breakthroughs, but that happens to be, you know, the 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 birth of the Taterick. So I thought, how can I, how can I replicate this? So I went and I um, found an artisan in Italy who was specialized in leather uh, because I wanted to take away anything that could chafe or rub or be uncomfortable. You know, if you're, if you're working with ropes, they're uncomfortable. You know, it's not, it, it might look very pretty to be hanging there, but you have to work with the ropes. And that's part of the challenge and part of the beauty of working with him. But I didn't want that. I wanted to push this into a zone of absolute comfort. And so we worked with a foam that was used by NASA to uh, dress the interior of spaceships. And it's like a really thick foam that gives and is soft and, you know, because, you know, you can sort of bump around up in space and as you have no gravity, no? Yeah. And so I wanted to do something that was anti-gravity. And so I had them sew the, the straps, which you can see on the video um, on YouTube, which was actually taken in the, um, the Fait Electrique, which in Paris is uh, a work of Ra Raoul Dufy. Is it Dufy? I'm having a bit of a mental. I think so, yeah. yeah, it's Raoul Dufy. Uh, you may giving me a doubt. It makes me very feel like I'm going crazy. Um, <laughs> yeah, Raoul Dufy. Raoul Dufy. Yeah. Uh, the Fay Electrique was a room that was painted in the Museum of Modern Art of Paris to tell the story of um, electricity. And so it gets up to, I think, 19, it was painted in 1935. I didn't know you're going to ask me questions about this. And so I'm sorry, I'm not really precise on dates, but you can see it on the YouTube. Mm. And the room is an, a spectacular room with soaring ceilings. And when they asked me to do a piece for that room, I said, okay, maybe let me feel what it feels like. Because for me, environment is everything. The way that environment uh, makes us feel uh, can also determine whether or not I can work in that space. And I remember walking into Salle, La Salle Ra Raoul Dufy and realizing that uh, I was in the shape of a womb. 
the room is the guy, it has, if you walk into that room, you realize it has a womb shape. And my space in Paris is also very womb shaped and very womb like and very safe, no? Yeah. I walked through and I could feel like a frisson, you know, I could feel like a, a chill come over me and I said, I can work here. And uh, it was really interesting. So I thought, oh, wow. You know, he got up to 1935, 36, 34. Can you check that while we're sitting here? So we give your listeners their right dates. Sure. I think it's 34, 1934. Le, le fait électricité. Um, come on, Wikipedia. Le fait électricité. It, yeah, 1937. You're right. 1937. Okay. So it's 1937. And he gets up to, you know, the light bulb and what have you. Um, and then... You know, I guess, I guess people thought that was kind of the max for electricity. And, but what happened in the 1950s was that neuroscience started to understand that the brain is um, working on frequencies now and electric impulses. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to um, find a way to tap the frequency of my subject which I'm going to put into this cheetah rig. I'm going to raise his body off the ground. I'm going to put him in a trance state or a theta state because the, the, the theta brainwave or the theta brainwave frequency, it is um, it, it, it vibrates when we are in uh, a state of either ecstasy or we are under hypnosis in very advanced states of yoga, uh, yogic, yogi or meditation uh the the theta brainwave frequency is also emitted now it's also emitted during orgasm so it makes a lot of sense that this experience of being having your brain forced to go into that frequency which is very calming would also make you feel very good no so yes. the goal was to take the electricity of the brain to this work of art which is all about electricity. And in real time, also put my 80 participants in this act, because you're only allowed to have 80 people in that room at the same time, in a theta trance. So through my subject's body, I tapped his brainwave frequency, ran it through a synthesizer, and I played his body, basically. And my uh, audience went with us. And I wasn't sure if it was going to work or not, but it did. <laughs> so everyone left the Museum of Modern Art kind of in a, you know, in a, in a haze. And uh, it was an amazing experience. That was the it, frequency session one. Right. Well, when I watched it on YouTube, I feel like I'm in a slight trance when you watch it as well. Just the entire room, you know. I, I also was re-watching it this morning and thinking, I love the way that the 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 person that you're using um, you know, has a very androgynous, not like I guess people would say now like non-binary feel that, you know. And I love how, you know, you're working with with a body that could sit on the gender spectrum any which way. And I and I love that. And I it felt like it felt like the two of you sort of look in harmony, but that th th there's a real sort of harmoniousness between you. And it felt like 
I, you know, I mean, it's amazing to watch and that's just on YouTube, you know. Thank you, Bishi. Yeah, that's, um, that's, that's really uh, interesting to, to hear your feedback. The person that I work with is someone who uh, has often, often offered his body and soul to experimentation. <laughs> so, uh, yes, and it was the first time he'd been in. So his brain was very active. You know, he was very excited. He didn't know exactly because he'd worked with me with being lifted and working with, you know, tapping the sound from the frequency, et cetera. But he had never actually been in this actual rig. So he was, you know, there was also a public that was present. And so he was super sensitive. And um, the brainwave emission that we got was so beautiful. And I had people come up to me after the session was over and they were like, I don't know what you just did to us, but I feel good. And I was like, well, that's what I want to do, you know, to make 80 people in one moment feel good. And the idea of being able to make people feel good also through the screen is another thing that I'm very curious with technology. Yeah. We'll come on to that because you've been really taking this on in the last year of, of, of the global pandemic. I just wanted to ask a little bit about the brain waves that were put through the synthesizer, if you could talk expand a little bit on how you did that, because that's really adds to the entire, you know, the, the meaning of the Dufay painting, the meaning of what you're, you know, it, you know, like there again, you've you, you've built a ritual and a world within a world, you know. Well, you got the word. It's ritual. I kind of ritualize all the way along. No, I mean it's important to for me in the in a ritualized space you have control of what's happening no one's in danger or if there was a danger you're prepared for an emergency so there's really no danger if you're prepared and um yeah that was maybe one of the most exciting rituals i'd ever done in terms of the way that i captured the the frequencies i worked with um uh a a musician who could actually capture the sound wave through an electrode, through electrodes, which I put really simple, just basic electrodes. Yeah. And um, he didn't change, he didn't intervene in the sound. He just avoided that at any moment, it would start to, it would start to be too, like peak too much or, maybe if he was super, super uh, stimulated, like, cause I was touching him. I was using my hands and I was touching his skin. I was using the tools. I was touching him with feathers and I was really playing his body, you know? And so the musician was there to just avoid that there were, there was anything that would have knocked my audience also out of trance, you no? Know? So it's number one. I'm really looking forward to doing part two. I've already advanced in terms of what I would what I would do differently and how I can um, change the experience. Uh, I will be doing some research very soon before we started to um, do the podcast together. I told you that I was uh, looking at um, setting up a, a research space for the body work uh, under a rooftop. So that I got the the top down <laughs> options, uh, and I can continue this this uh, 
this experience of and this experiment really body experiment of um, working with sound I've got I've, I have um si since I did the cheetah the first the first Teta rig number one uh, frequency session at the museum it was kind of in a moment when I was really understanding that you know I was putting people in a trance the people that go inside the rig they start to trance and one day I was working with um, someone for chronic pain and they came and I, I because they're used to doing it I would just put them in the the rig and set them up make sure that they were warm everything was good wait for them to start to go into a trance as soon as they were in I would ask them can I can I leave you alone because sometimes people want to be alone it's like a meditation and she said yes I'm, I want to be alone so I went upstairs and then I came down a few minutes later just to check very quietly. And I stayed with her. And when the session was over, which lasts about 25 minutes, you float for about 25 minutes and you have the benefits of about two and a half hours of meditation. And when it was time to bring her down, she said to me, I can't open my eyes. She'd gone into such a deep trance that she couldn't open her eyes. And so my instinct was that I would count to three. No, and I counted to three, I did one, two, three. And she opened her eyes. The next day, I decided I better get my certification. And so I went and I, um, I applied to a class which is offered to doctors and psychotherapists here in Paris um, that is um, to obtain certification for clinical hypnosis because I was basically hypnotizing them through body position, right? trance, trance induction. And um, it, it pushed me to certify because it kept happening that I would take somebody so far. <laughs> and it was really, really incredible to work with all these doctors and, um, and psychotherapists and learn how to actually intentionally take someone to the other side of the brain and work in that space. So my work as a hypnotherapist became more and more uh, sort of evolved because I can do a fast induction. Sometimes people are resistant to going to that other side of the brain, which is by the way, more than 90% of the brain that we are using right now, you and me, you know, we're in alpha beta and we're using, we're using uh, our brain in a, a very small portion of the brain. And I'm interested in what's happening. And I've always been interested in what's happening on the bigger part of the brain, but I didn't understand. Like for example, I've meditated since I was a child and you have too. I mean, as an Indian woman, you learn to meditate very early, no? Yeah. yeah. And they say that uh, when the brains of people who meditate are analyzed, they're very different from brains of people who don't meditate. And I um, am very grateful to have had that uh, opportunity here in Paris to certify and be of service during COVID that certification allowed me to be sidelined. And um, again, another you know moment of working with technology and sound. And I'm so fascinated by your work too. It's, it's, I mean, you know, you're using your voice, you play instruments, you understand what vibration is, the sound vibration and how it's healing and how it makes you feel, you know, it can open up that heart chakra though. Absolutely. And I'm learning more and more about it. I'm 
about to enter into a project which is all to do with kind of neurodiversity and sound. I'll tell you a little bit more about that later. But some things that I've really loved about what you've embraced during the pandemic is how you've taken to the digital experience. So in terms of the meditations that you've released during COVID on your YouTube channel, and now the amazing sessions that you host on Clubhouse, which now I think are on a weekly basis. So first, could you talk us through the meditations that you put on your YouTube channel, kind of what inspired that and what was the process of putting that together? Well, like everyone during the first lockdown, um, I realized that I had a lot of tools and that for me to be confined and to be alone, uh, because my partner was confined in Italy and we got stuck separated for nine months. Uh, I, I realized that there, there could be a lot of suffering and a lot of fear and a lot of negative things that can come through fear and suffering. No, the biggest enemy is fear. And we were scared, people were scared. You know, you don't know what's happening. The, you know, if you watch the media, which I do not do, I, I keep it to a dull roar and turn things on the radio. I don't have, I've never had a television in my house. I just don't have time for it. Uh, but, you know, I do like a radio when I need to know what's going on. I mean, I want to know what's going on. And on Sundays I'll buy paper, you know, the paper, either the New York Times or Le Monde or uh, the Independent, uh, the Guardian, whatever it may be. You know, I like to get a little bit of real news sometimes, but anyway. I realized that people were getting addicted to uh, trying to figure out what was going on. And when I would listen to the news, it was all about the unknown. Now for me, news should be concrete. If you don't know what you're talking about, then you shouldn't say things. You should really just be quiet because otherwise you're going to ramp up this fear energy you now. Yeah. And they really didn't know what they were talking about. Nobody, nobody really had answers, you know, and there was also like the other side of the conversation and Nobel Prize winners were being silenced. And there, it was, you know, I mean, I prefer just not to, I mean, I will never know the truth. We will never know the truth. I don't really know, you know, we don't know still how, why, what, but I will presume that this is happening because we have not been gentle with our planet and we are not gentle with each other. You know, humans are not gentle for some strange reason. Yeah. You know, I think it's unfathomable to still have wars and that we're still battling over issues of race or sexual identity or any of these things. Yeah. You know, my mother was fighting for this in 1960. She helped to start the, by being a white woman to go and join the brave Greensboro Four in North Carolina. Yeah. At the white only counter, it was the first sit-in, you know, in, in, in history. And you would think that what is it, 60 years later? Yeah. It was February 1, 1960, that the revolution would have come to something more, but we're back exactly where we were. It just keeps on repeating itself. No? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. So anyway, um, I realized that I had to be of service. You know, I thought, well, what can I do to help other people? You know, I'm not a nurse. I am not a doctor. What can I do to be useful? So I thought about it and I thought, well, maybe I will just do like a really basic 
it's a it's a quite deep hypnosis session. They both are. They run about 45 minutes. Um, and I threw a blanket over the <laughs> have a Bauhaus lamp over my table in the green room where we're sitting. Uh, and I blocked out all of the echoes and possible sounds. My my house is also made to be very dimensional. As you know, it has curtains everywhere. I closed everything up and put up a mic and I decided to register these, these sessions and share them on YouTube. And one is um, was all about COVID anxiety because I could feel, I was also working for the first time I worked online, like my, my the, the, not the body part, but the talk therapy sessions that I do, I was suddenly working online yeah. and I embraced that. It scared me. I was like, oh, how am I going to do this? But in reality, it works with me in an interesting way. It's very effective because you don't have the actual person in front of you. So there's a lot of, elimination of of superfluous things you know you know your time is one hour you're there you're in the screen you do it I couldn't believe that I was actually able to do the talk therapy and hyp hypnosis work online it yeah. worked yeah uh so I started to do that but I I wanted to to be available to more people I wanted not just to be able to help the people that you know knew what I do and were seeking my help um but I wanted to help a wider public and so I did it. So the first one was anxiety management. Um, and uh, it's a full blown, you know, I take you in, it's 45 minutes. And then the next one, because I kept getting feedback from people, I was getting very concerned about our brothers and sisters around the world, um, especially those who were either confined with someone who they were not in a harmonious relationship with. And so things were escalating, but, but in the case of the session that I designed, I was really focused on people who were either confined alone or confined far from someone that they love. And so my intention with Heart to Heart uh, in the COVID series was to take you deep enough to allow you to really seriously, deeply, deeply relax and, um, and, and, really touch the heart center. And if you let someone know, or you share that meditation with someone that is far away that you cannot hug. No, we cannot hug each other right now, Pichi. So uh, the idea was that we could hug each other from a distance, no? And so it's very, it's very sens sensorial and sensational. I also wanted people who were alone and not being touched to have the impression that they were being touched. And so it's happening from the inside out, obviously, but that's what the second session was about. And I really am very much looking forward to uh, doing more sessions like this. I have a project that's, um, in fact, on Thursday, I have an important call. And I'm, I, I really want to, I want to take you on this journey and I want it to be accessible to all. And I want to fine tune it. And I have some very specific things that I'd like to do in that field using the voice and using technology. Amazing. So, yes. And when you're delivering these meditations, do you slightly fall into the trance yourself? Yes, <laughs> I do. Yes, it's very calming. 
um, I learned so much about my boys uh, during COVID. Um, you know, as a young girl, I loved to sing, and I've 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 sung in a couple of bands as a kid. Um, <laughs> I I was always very intrigued when we would do breath work um, or chant how the voice can actually resonate on different levels at the same time. I, the voice is an incredible instrument, no? And I think that in our society, we're not actually taught to use the voice. And when you use the voice in a specific way, it means that you have to be relaxed. I mean, you know, as a singer, you cannot, you, you have to really be poised and centered to have an aperture that allows you to project and express yourself in, in a harmonious way, no? Um, the use of the voice is, yeah, I want to go there now. I want to go there. I was gonna tell you something else. Uh, you distracted me with the sounds of the arming. If I go into trance, yes, I go into a trance. Backtrack with me. Um, yes, me. When you're delivering these, well, I was gonna say sermon, but when you're delivering these, <laughs> <laughs> when you're delivering these meditations, I was just, you know, how is the effect on you? Because the same I, thing is when I'm doing a session with you, I, I go with you. I'm traveling with you. Absolutely. And it's funny that you say sermons because on Clubhouse, <laughs> I am, um, I'm reading from the Boudoir Bible on Sundays, you know, specifically at six, which I know is a little bit of a tricky hour for some people. And maybe we'll change that once COVID is behind us. Uh, but uh, yeah, it does bring us to your the second part of your question, which was about Clubhouse and why Clubhouse and how I embraced Clubhouse. I embraced Clubhouse because I am highly censored. So I am. I have. Uh, you know, I have a book that is in ten languages. Almost, we're on, we're working on the tenth. The ninth and tenth are in the making. I'm not going to tell too much. I will tell one. One of them is Greek. Um, and we didn't talk about this big spoke in my wheel, which is the Boudoir Bible. Well, let's talk about it now in relation to Clubhouse. I mean, it, it, it's been a very important book for me, Bethany. So, you know. Oh, Bishi, I do love you, you know. What I love you too. My work brought you into my life. And isn't that amazing? I, I, do you know what? When I first met you, it just felt like a Fellini film because... <laughs> We were outside, I think, the Rodin Museum. And you just walked down like it would like it was just, just like a scene from eight and a half. <laughs> and you were like, darling, there you are. <laughs> you know, I would just, yeah, I felt like uh, you know, I I felt like not like a baby, but I felt like a, a small child and this like it's so funny that you say that. I guess I do have a, a maternal sort of, I do care, you know, I want people to be yeah. happy and well and get the most out of life. But actually, Dita Lantiz once told me, she's like, I feel safe with you because there's like something maternal. I was like, oh no, I'm becoming everybody's mommy. No, 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 no but it's not, it's not mommy in the it's like, love, darling. It's, it's yeah. Love. It, I love you and you can feel it. Yeah, it's just a more, but it, but it but it was just like you were just there, just like this Fellini goddess, and you know, like in Cinema Paradiso, when the kids are like looking up at the screen, like starry eyed. That it, it it's not like you felt like you know that like you were mumsy. It was more like I was a child in a in a movie house. Do you know what I mean? That that kind of magic. 
but yeah um I felt the same about you let me tell oh. you um yeah. so having a on an ongoing battle with censorship on social mm -hmm. media has been a huge issue for me and it's mm -hmm. something that I really battle with and I have a lot of questions about why it's happening and why um a book that I think could easily be um, put into a high school se sexual education uh, program, being that children are watching hardcore porn unwillingly from the age of five on. Yeah. We are currently watching uh, the um, uh, Gen Z become, in many cases, very detached from their own sexuality because they've been watching so much porn that when it comes to real sex, they have no desire. Mm. They're disinterested. And it's really a huge issue. So porn is allowed. It is actually pumped into our virtual worlds constantly. And not only virtual. I mean, advertising is hinged on desire, right? Mm. Creating, seducing the um, consumer. And in the case of porn, we are, there's a lot of studies that are going on around what is it really doing to people's brains? What is it doing to children's brains who have no sexual experience, but are, ha are watching the sexual experience? And in often extreme, you know, it's been proven. Children, whether they want to or not, are watching porn. During the lockdown, when I told you that I wanted to be of service, for the first time in my life, I was going to really be of service and do something for a very large group, get intimate, you know, with a, go into intimate conversations with a group of 300 people. So I booked this 300 person Zoom room. I did all of the, all of the communications and preparations and graphics and all of the posting. Everything was prepared for a six part series called Live from Eden. I was going to open up my, my sacred workspace and be there with you and be there for questions and, and to talk about things that are, for me, very important. For example, touch in a time when it's been a year that some people haven't even had a hug, you know? And I, I posted it and immediately I promoted and they immediately shut me down. You can't do this. You, you're, you are doing sex work and, um, uh, and 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 selling toys, which is for me is one of the greatest insults. I do not make toys. I make tools. I do not sell rubber ducky vibrators. That's not what I do. I don't make vibrators. I want you to vibrate on a different note, you know? And I find the word toys, even though I'm totally pro-play, but I don't make toys. That's not what I do. I make tools for adults. I work for adults, no? And... Uh, so all of a sudden this plan to be able to be accessible and do a six part series of Live from Eden uh, was canceled. And I was very upset, Bishi. I really have to be honest with you. I don't know why my work, which is about wellness, is banned yeah. on these devices. So my friend Asia, who we have in common. I love Asia. Uh, yes, beautiful Asia who's been my dear friend for 25 years. Uh, she said, she called me one day. She said, look, I think that I've got the solution. You can jump around and over this censorship issue, which again, I have on, I have on both Instagram channels on, I've tried to like open up alternative channels to be able to overcome it, but they immediately 
um, get me and I, they, they, they block me. And I have, it's a really interesting conversation. And I, if you like, I'll share with you some ideas about that, about yeah. why it happens. Um, and I'll talk about one of my favorite people in the world who's Audrey Lorde, who in 78 wrote a paper on erotica and it's so pertinent. If you like, I'll even read a little piece for you. Oh yes, yeah, wonderful. Um, so I went and I created this uh, uh, Sunday service with readings from the Boudoir Bible, the uninhibited sex guide for today. And I just read a tiny bit so that then we can open up a free flow conversation around topics that we're not allowed to um, talk about anywhere else and that are delicate sometimes. Um, I have a very um, diverse uh, public as I do in my life. My, I mean, I am surrounded by, I mean, diversity for me is the spice of life. And the rooms are, are they welcome, I welcome everyone. Uh, and it's really amazing to see really and, and have people come and be so open and um, about their intimacy, their sex lives, their sex changes, their, I mean, it's just amazing to, to have a place where people share. And what I love about Clubhouse is that we're not distracted by pictures or um, emoji or even the possibility to ping each other notes and get distracted. So being a lover of radio, as I mentioned before, I'm a, I love the radio. Uh, I really find uh, that it's an interesting tool. Now, I was supposed to be doing a podcast of my own just before COVID. And when I came back and just before lockdown, I was actually in LA working to put together the base of a podcast. And um, I, don't, I, th I don't think that Clubhouse can replace podcasts. I no. don't. But I'm very um, happy to have, you know, had the opportunity to do something that brought the conversations to the forefront. Um, and the conversations are varied. I mean, last weekend we talked about we talked about transformation and um, the power of transformation. And I brought on a, a friend of mine who is in New York City, who is a professional makeup artist. Her name is Francelle Dali, and Francelle is on one side of her career, she's, you know, doing the makeup for the cover of Vogue and working with supermodels, et cetera. But on the other side, she has a beauty brand that is um, about transformation. And she works with her partner uh, and they completely transform themselves into something that's not at all got to do with a standard canon of beauty. And it's really interesting. So, and what that does, you know, and what does costume, what do props, what do, what do you, even just your clothing do uh, in terms of the way that you feel, how is it going to transform you? And of course I bring the conversation always back to sex and to pleasure and how we can use props and makeup and, and, and things to feel good yeah. uh, to actually enhance our sex lives. And, yeah. and it starts with self-love, you know, makeup is it for me is about self-love and transformation, of course, and beauty and aesthetics and play. But if we look at it from a historical point of view, we learn that makeup was also something that was very much used by men throughout centuries. You know, the 16th yeah. century male would had more makeup on than any any makeup that you and I ever wore together in our entire lives. No, yeah. <laughs> a lot of wax and they were covering up pock marks and scars from syphilis and sexual yeah. diseases and that hadn't been figured out, you know, how to cure them yet, et cetera. 
So yeah, you're all welcome to join me on Clubhouse. Fantastic. Those Sunday afternoons at six o'clock. And the Boudoir Bible, I mean, it's a it's been, I knew it took me six years to write the Boudoir Bible. There's a yeah. lot of scientific research that backs up things like, you know, I was asking myself, well, why does it feel so good when someone ties me up? What's going on in my brain? You know, what's happening? Why does it allow certain people to actually experience enhanced orgasms? Why? So I answer these questions in the Boudoir Bible because I think they need to be answered. Like, what does a blindfold do? How do I use it properly? What are the risks of using ropes? What do I need to do to make sure that I don't hurt someone? How do I avoid emergencies? Emergencies don't happen unless you're not prepared. You know, yeah. you're prepared. You can deal with any emergency. There is no emergency if you if you have set up your ritual space and you know what you're doing. And uh, yeah, I was fascinated by these things. You know, I mean, 50% of the Boudoir Bible is also about the body. And because I make tools for the body, I felt, you know, at a certain point, I became an author by obligation. I realized, wow, you know, you can go and you can buy uh, a flogger or a whip, or you can even just go to the hardware store and buy cords. Uh, and they don't come with instructions. And full body stimulation, which is um, what the other half of the book is about, uh, is um, something that requires skills, you know? But you could even go into a normal, you know, erotica store, sex store, because up until 2001, people don't think about it. But up until 2001, there wasn't really a place where women could shop safely for erotic gear or lube or, you know, if you're into leather, leather, if you're into lace, lace, you could go to a lingerie store. But a, a, a proper erotica shop or a sex shop, it didn't really exist until Coco de Mer. Yeah. Did their thing. It did exist in the 70s in America. And there, I mean, credit goes to Good Vibrations in America, which was a feminist, uh, female run business, and it's still there. But um it, you know, Coco de Mer was different in the sense that it was it was really on the right side of town. And yeah. be in Soho and go to Covent Garden and and you know, finish up your your you know shopping. In, in in this beautiful safe space, you know that's what Sam Roddick did. She created a super safe space, beautifully curated choice of things, and she was really into into quality, you know, at the time, um, you know, durable, quality, beautiful. So I clicked with Sam immediately. You know, sad that she's not there anymore. Yeah, well, of course, because in in the Boudoir Bible, you're really talking about the quality of experience, whereas. What I found in the media is so many of these depictions of erotic play are just overly sensationalized or, you know, we're still stuck in that mother hall complex or it's very cheap or it's very competitive. It's about well, how much can you take and how much can you do? And so to have a book that was actually about ritual and about play and about sensuality, personally for me, was really really important and I've still not found anything like it since so I think the Boudoir Bible is a really really important book. Thank you it's interesting because it's evolving with us you know um, I'm in the fifth reprint in English with Rizzoli mm -hmm. and it is also in French in Portuguese in I crossed boundaries I don't know if you know this but I it was also printed in uh, in Taiwanese. Wow yes didn't know I would get it to Asia so quickly I'm excited because I really think that it would be exciting to see it come out in Japan. 
but uh, in the meantime, it's in Portuguese and Czech, Polish, uh, Russian. Um, what other languages? Uh, it's it coming out now in Greek. Wow. Mm. Has it been printed in Hindi? That would be amazing. No, but please let's do it. You know, and I had a funny conversation with a friend once. He said, what would you call it if it was in Hindi? The, um, how did he call it? Oh, well, I mean, this could offend someone. Look, <laughs> <laughs> they're offended. They're not in our gang. <laughs> Kinky Bhagavajita. Oh, my God. <laughs> the Kinky Quran. Do you know what? <laughs> Do you know what? Lots of people that I know would, if you said, oh, here's a book, it's called Kinky Bhagavadvita. No, I'm, I'm saying it wrong. Jesus. Kinky Bhagavad Gita. They'd love it. They'd be like, oh my God, I need to read it now. But but that just says something about the sort of friends that I have. Do you know what yeah, I mean? The difference is that a Bible, the word Bible is a word that people think, okay, the Holy Bible, but the Bible is a is a is a genre of book. It is a complete guide. It is something that really covers the subject, no? Then yeah. there's the Holy Bible, but there's only one Bhagavad Bhagavad Gita. How do you say it properly in Indian? Uh, Bhagavad Gita. Sorry, I'm messing you up. Bhagavad Gita, or the Quran. They're actually text, and uh, it's a very specific text. And it's really strange to think about it, but the Bible in itself is. Um, well, what does Bhagavad Gita mean, actually? Is oh, it God, I don't know off the top of my head. I could I could Google it right now. Um, Bhagavad Gita, the actual meaning, the meaning in English. Song of God. That's beautiful. Yeah. Ah, Song of God. Amazing, though. Kinky Bhagavad Gita. I love yeah. that. I'm I'm putting that out. It's into even the, the word kinky is a word that I I dropped. You know, in in the in the Budwar Bible, I dropped words that could have uh, that, that have negative connotations. You know, yeah. even the word normal. I dropped it. I was like, don't use the word normal. What does that mean? Like, what? It, yeah normal sex what does that mean i don't understand so i really like cleared out the terminology so we 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 have a space where categories just fall apart that's what i wanted to do i wanted to dismantle the pleasure taboo and i wanted to have a disintegration of categorization categorization in general in my life you know there's nothing worse yeah um but because it limits us, you know, it limits the person who categorizes. It's like somebody who judges, you know, like, who are you to judge? The person who's judging is actually creating a self-limitation. Absolutely. Absolutely. So the idea was to open up all these horizons. And uh, and I'm so happy. You know, it's really incredible. The feedback that comes to the, the with the book um, in all these languages and the, the possibilities that it's opened and where um, also it. it there's so much work to be done because again, I've got this censorship issue. Yeah. So, you know, the people that follow me and support me are really precious parts of my wheel. Just like every single journalist or every single person that has, let's say it, you know, the, the courage to speak out and speak about important topics like yourself, you know, yeah. it's, it's, it's you, you help me to spread the word and break down the misconceptions and um, empower people. I'm here to empower people. I, 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 I guess because, you know, I decided not to have children and I also decided not to put uh, 
chemicals in my body or in the water system or uh, anything else. And I, I, I removed my fallopian tubes. And um, as a woman who made a conscious choice to not have children, I feel that I have duty to be at service. So the book allows me to do that. The jewelry is, um, it's, it's less democratic. I mean, I also wrote the book because I wanted to give, um, to, to have something for everyone. I realized that my work is not for everyone. It's made in precious metals and it's really about collecting and it's limited editions and I don't make that much of it. And um, I don't sell in many points of, you know, either you come to me for the work or you go to first dibs. I'm on first dibs now, which is great. Um, but, you know, it's not democratic, my work, because gold and silver and precious metals are not, you know, and I can't give you anything less for your body. I don't want you to use soft plaque sticks that are not body safe. I don't want to make things. Maybe one day I will. I'm studying some interesting metals at the moment with my one of my producers in Italy. We'll see what happens. But um, I want you to have body safe, natural things, you know, like when I started to research what was inside of a soft plastic. And I realized that the, all of these vibrators that were made in soft plastic that don't have a tag that says body safe on them are actually toxic. Yeah. And you're putting it inside of your anus or your vagina or your mouth. And guess what? It, that is like the direct entry into the bloodstream. And the same plastics are, are in America. They're only banned in California. There, there are products in these soft plastics that are completely cancerogenous and they make baby teething toys with them. So if you have babies, you need to make sure that you're using a body safe teether. And if it's not written body safe, it's not. Jesus. <laughs> so you get them all nice and you know, get the toxins and the poisons flowing quick. Oh my <laughs> God. <laughs> yeah, we've got a lot of cleaning up to do, you know, Absolutely. really, we have a lot of cleaning up to do. So I decided to, um, yeah, not put another baby here and um, and be of service. And it's amazing. And I love babies, don't get me wrong. <laughs> babies love me. Uh, <laughs> and I do. I, 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 really, I really hope that we can make the world a safer place for future generations because it's not a safe place right now. Yeah. And uh, we all have a duty, I think. And maybe... Maybe COVID has woken people up. I don't know. I hear a lot of people saying, oh, when we get back to normal. Well, there's that word that I don't like. Yeah. We get back to normal. What was happening was not normal. Yeah. What was happening led to this. So this is not the norm I'm interested in. Absolutely. We have an opportunity to rewrite things. Yes. Opportunity as, yeah. a, as, as humanity as a whole for the first time in history. Yeah. Well, as I'm going to come to the last question, and I just want to thank you. This whole sort of hour or so has been absolutely just breathtaking. I, I love spending any kind of time, whether it's virtual over Zoom or whether we're in your space together. You know, it's you it know just, how we it can breathe together. So much. Thank yeah. you. Isn't it interesting yeah. how we've reevaluated the screen and, um, We've not been lonely. I think what we have been for who is isolated alone or in a relationship that is not, um, that they've not managed to evolve, which was, was one of the topics of my live in Eden that got banned on Instagram and Facebook. Ridiculous. Yeah. It's just ridiculous. Let's come to this. But um, 
what we are missing is human contact. And we know that little babies, newborn babies, if they are not touched and they are not held, they will die. And so there's a part of us right now in everyone that is sleeping. And if there's a message for your listeners is, you know, as soon as you can hug, please go do it. And and um, hug yourself in the meantime. I mean, I've done a lot of like self-love rituals in the nine months that I was blocked down alone of dry brushing, self-massage. And I was using these, these tools called bongers. You know, you can use, also use your hands. You close your, do the mudra with the thumb on the inside of the palm and fold your fingers over and just tap the muscles of the body from the feet and tap everything. You can tap your head to, to, to create physical contact. It's really important. And uh, we, we're, we're not made to not hold each other. You know, we're not made to not hold someone that we love who's dying. You know, this COVID has just, just been the most horrible, evil thing. And I don't want to see COVID-20. I don't want to see any more of this. And I don't want to go back to quote unquote normal, because for me, that is a word that we shouldn't use. What does it mean? What does that mean? What does normal mean? <sighs> I get very emotional about it. <laughs> well, Bethany, you are bringing so much light and so much love to everyone. So thank you so much. And I'll be posting some links to certain videos, the meditations, and really looking forward to putting this out to our listeners. So thank you. I'll so be much. sharing with you. Mwah. Mwah. And uh, I love you and take care. <laughs> I love you too. Yay! Thank you so much to Bethany. I feel utterly inspired from this conversation. And thanks to everyone for listening. This has been a really special episode. Ah.